In 2016, a young man sat down on a bench, and it led to one of the bigger news stories and more controversial moments in the last three years. Does a man sitting down on a bench sound like that would be so controversial? Well, you need to know the rest of the context like anything else. This man sitting on the bench was a professional football player. The bench he was sitting on was the bench that he was going to ride since he actually didn't play much because he wasn't very good at football anymore. And so he's sitting on a bench on the sidelines of a professional football game in the preseason, the games that don't even count or matter. So why did a backup quarterback in the preseason, sitting on the bench in a football game, become one of the bigger news stories in the last three years and more controversial moments in the United States? Well, because of context. He was sitting on the bench during the national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. As opposed to the tradition and all of the rest of the players and coaches and staff, they were standing to honor the country and the flag for which the national anthem was about. During the post-game interview of this preseason game of this backup quarterback, he explained that he is not going to stand up and show pride in a flag for a country that oppress African Americans and people of color. Now why share that story? Because if you can understand what's happened over the last three years, that the media has been obsessed. Now, maybe some of you don't follow sports, so you're not as like, I have no idea what this story is, and I did not realize that they were so obsessed with it, but they have been obsessed with this story, especially in the professional sports realm of media, and I know that this has breached outside of the professional sports realm because our President of the United States has spoken up about it and given his two cents on what he thinks should happen for these professional athletes that have decided to kneel or sit or not do something in reverence of the flag and the national anthem. If you can understand the dynamics that's gone on over the last three years with this movement that's been called Black Lives Matters, if you can understand the traditions, the national symbols that are then kind of being at stake here, what's going on, then you're going to better understand Matthew chapter 15. Because in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the man we looked at last week who walked on water, Jesus, not just an ordinary man, even though he is an ordinary man, Jesus, the Son of God, is getting himself in controversy. And the main thing he's getting himself in controversy over are the very national symbols like a national anthem, or a flag, some element that speaks to the identity of patriotism or of identity of being a Jewish person. And so follow along as I read Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. And as we read this, I really could care very little as to maybe where all of us stand on Colin Kaepernick and some of the protests that have been done you know, on the national anthem, the point is you need to understand the context. You need to understand what's going on, and when that makes sense, oh, he's sitting down on a bench, 
in the middle of the national anthem. No wonder people are getting all upset. No wonder this is a national news story, even though this is a backup quarterback from a guy that doesn't even play anymore. Literally, he doesn't even play in the professional sports anymore, but people are still talking about this guy. With that, let's read Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to them, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, and it is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This passage is broken, I think, into two halves, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 10 through 20. And I think in terms of you understanding how this applies to you, and how this connects to your everyday life, I'm going to give you two questions that I want you to be thinking about for how to follow Jesus. Question number one, should we follow traditions? Should people who follow the teachings of Jesus care about traditions? Whatever those traditions might be, cultural traditions, religious traditions, church traditions, family traditions, traditions in your country, national traditions, should we follow them or should we break them? And when should we know when to do which? That's question number one. Question number two, should we follow our heart? If you were to ask what seems to be almost anybody, that seems to be a mantra of everyday common speak in our day and age. Follow your heart. Well, should we? Should followers of Jesus follow their heart? And so we'll take those one at a time. Let's start with question number one. Looking and working through verses one through nine, should we follow traditions? 
I want to read you verse 1 and 2 yet again. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Should disciples of Jesus follow traditions? Well, in this story, they're breaking some traditions. Whose traditions? What traditions? Hand-washing tradition. The tradition of the elders or ancestors. The elders of the people of the Jewish faith. And notice, it says in verse 1, Pharisees and scribes are the ones that are asking this question. And they came from where? Jerusalem. Jesus is where? Galilee. How far away is Jerusalem and Galilee? Two to three days that it would take to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. Just think about this for a second. You've got a group of guys that are traveling two to three days because some dudes aren't washing their hands before they eat. That's the story. I'm not making this up. I'm just reading you the story. These self-appointed religious leaders, it's very important to understand, Pharisees are self-appointed religious leaders. Who are they most like in the modern day? Media members. They're not government workers. These men who are coming and asking this question do not work for the Roman government, so they're not sanctioned by the government. Okay, but they're obviously religious, so they're sanctioned by the Jewish religious elite. No, they're not the Sanhedrin. There is a high priest. That's not them. These are self-appointed leaders that have organized themselves into a movement, and they are going to be watchdogs over what they believe the right way to be a Jew is. It's kind of like media members going around and watching professional athletes sit on a bench and making a big deal about something because it's touching something that they don't think is right, or maybe they think it's right and they want to promote it, or maybe they think it's wrong and they want to talk about it. Sound familiar? Something that on the surface might seem insignificant. Somebody sitting on a bench at a preseason football game of a backup quarterback who's not even in the NFL anymore. Some misfit disciples. You've got to remember the people that Jesus is with are not like the elite. Fishermen, no-name people. And this catches the attention from these Pharisees and scribes all the way in Jerusalem that they're going to go make a trip and they're going to be upset about them not washing their hands before they eat. Now, some of you are hygiene freaks and you're like, I get it. That's a big deal. Please, use hand sanitizer before we shake hands after the service. You know, like that kind of person, you might be getting it. That's not what this is about. This is not about hygiene. The hand washing is connected with few food purity ritual laws. Traditions. Traditions like when you stand up for the national anthem, if you don't stand up, everybody's be like, what are you doing? It's kind of like that. And so these men are being discipled by Jesus to break a well-understood, well-established tradition. One translation of that phrase, traditions of the elders. Why do your disciples break tradition of the elders? It's more of like a in everyday language, we might say, how dare your disciples? They're, this is a rhetorical, like, not why. It's like, what do they think they're doing? How in the world 
could they break our ancestors' cherished traditions? And the reason answer that Jesus gives is a question. Why in the world are you willing to break God's word, commandments? Look at verses 3 to 6. Jesus' response to these self-appointed leaders' question, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do your disciples break our tradition? Well, why do you break God's command? This is not like a, an answer. This is a counterattack. Jesus is asking, why do you break the commandments of God? What commandments of God for the sake of our tradition? Well, let me explain. Verse 4, he says, God commanded in the Ten Commandments. This is a quotation from Exodus chapter 20, when Moses got the Ten Commandments. And in there, commandment number five, honor your father and mother. You ever heard that one? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And then he adds on top of it that a couple of chapters later in Exodus chapter 21, 22, Jesus says, and then it says also in the law of Moses, whoever reviles or curses or just completely undermines the authority of their father or mother, they must be put to death. And so he then quotes that scripture, the commandment of God. Honor your father and mother, and you blatantly and just terribly curse your parents, the law says you should be put to death. I'm wondering if any of you are like struggling with spanking conversations. Well, like, hey, we've moved a long way, huh? Nobody's pulling out rocks and stoning people. But that's the Old Testament law, and it's in an honor-shame culture. And for some of you, you just need to realize that there is something that's really big at stake, that if you get disrespected by your son or daughter in a way, that it would completely ruin everything for really the rest of your life in the community. The stakes are high. This is not just a little social embarrassment. This is like your economical survival and has huge implications for every part of your life, including your social standing. Some of you might know the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. That's an example of disrespecting your father, asking for him, hey, dad, I think you're pretty much good as dead to me. Can I have my inheritance now while you're still alive? Does that sound disrespectful? The response of the father should have been, stone him. But Jesus tells a story where the father gives him the money and then receives him back after he spends it all on wasteful things. That's the gospel in a little parenthesis there, by the way. Just an illustration of the countercultural idea Father and mother should be honored and respected. And this would have been enforced with even capital punishment. So then the Pharisees might be wondering at this point, well, how have we not obeyed the commandment to honor your father and mother? And Jesus explains in verse 5, but you say, and this is more than likely a reference to their oral tradition. So this is, again, him referencing the tradition and how the tradition is going to contradict a clear command, not just any command, but a Ten Commandment. And here's what he says. If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you should, would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. 
And now on the surface, that might seem a little bit like, what is he talking about? He's talking about a tradition called Korban. And it's a tradition that if you want to not have to feel like you got to take care of your mom and dad when they get older, there's a little loophole where you can devote whatever that money you would have spent, like let's just imagine in modern day language, like instead of like providing nursing care support or hospice care, be like that would cost me a lot of money to help care for my mom and dad that way. Well, this is what I'll do. I'll donate it to the church and then now that money is kind of occupied with God. And that's really important, so therefore, well, sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't help because I gave all that money to God. That's what he's talking about here. He says, so wait, your tradition allows for a loophole for you to not have to take care of your parents when they get older so that you can just spend your money however you want and kind of get off. Maybe, like, let's say you don't like your parents and you want to disrespect them, but you want to do it kind of subtly and not overtly. So they created a tradition, an oral teaching. In Mark's gospel, if you read the same story in Mark chapter 7, it's a parallel account, Jesus says a further statement. He says, and I could keep going with more and more illustrations of how your oral traditions contradict the word of God. This is just one example of what I mean. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void, you have nullified the very words of God. This might help explain the context for why Jesus' disciples are breaking the hand-washing tradition. Jesus does not want to be associated with any such oral traditions that are filled with clear contradictions to the word of God. Followers of Jesus cherish the word of God. Followers of Jesus obey the word of God. Followers of Jesus do not contradict the word of God. Friend, are you a follower of Jesus? Do you name the name of Jesus? Then you need to understand that there might be traditions that you need to break because those traditions are in contradiction to the word of God. So that's your answers for this question. When should we or should we ever break traditions? Should we follow all of them? Answer is, sometimes we should because traditions do not equal God's word. And secondly, sometimes traditions nullify or contradict God's word. And so I think we need to think through this in our own lives and think of examples. When might our traditions nullify the Word of God? Let me give you a good tradition. Here's an easy, nice, controversial one. Should you drink alcohol or should you take on a tradition that's been common in the United States of America, especially not really in many other parts of the world, but in the United States in particular, where Christians have said we're never going to drink alcohol and made a tradition behind it? Don Carson, he just retired from the school down the street, Trinity International, over in Deerfield. He's been a teacher there for a real long time, and he tells a story about how there was a gathering of people, and some of the people who were Christians, they were saying they followed Jesus, said that you're not a Christian if you drink alcohol. And right then and there at the restaurant, he ordered like a, a, an alcoholic drink. Because he wanted to make it clear that my standing before God is not based on your man-made tradition, although that tradition might be helpful. 
it might be helpful for some of you to have rules, man-made rules, to obey God and not get drunk. Because God's word says we should not indulge ourselves in drunkenness. Rather, we should fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. Read Ephesians chapter 5. Man-made rules can be helpful, but these man-made rules that Jesus is contradicting here are not helping them obey God's word. So follow a tradition when the tradition helps you follow God. Let me give you another story. My wife and I were visiting a church. We were going to college, and so we were looking for a new church, and we were visiting this specific church that was within walking distance. And there was a tradition in the church, and the tradition was that women should wear skirts or dresses. And that if you were not wearing skirts or dresses, which my wife, at that time she was my, my girlfriend, we were at church, she was wearing pants. Exactly the appropriate response. <gasps> so the pastor said, if you do not want to burn in hell, go home and burn your pants. No joke. No joke. Is that in the word of God? Yes or no? No. Can women wear pants? Can they, for whatever cultural reason, wear certain clothing and make a man-made rule to help them love people and obey God, but not bind that on other people's consciences and say you're going to burn in hell if you don't wear this certain attire. You get it? Church people love man-made rules to easily check off boxes so that they can show that they're more holy than other people. Church people, meaning <clears throat> us, this is not about those churches outside there. This is about what man-made rules that are not in the Word of God are we making that are making it seem as if it is equal with the Word of God. Anytime you start sniffing that or feeling that, it might be time to sit down and have a conversation with somebody in this church. Or do something provocative like Don Carson and say, give me a beer. To help show and demonstrate that is not the gospel. The gospel is not about man-made rules. The gospel is not even about God's rules first and foremost. It is about God saving sinners who have broken God's rules and need a savior to change their heart to want to obey God's rules. So what does Jesus say about these man-made rule followers and tradition keepers? Hypocrites. See that in verse 7? You hypocrites. By the way, this is one of the sections of the Bible that you need to have in your catalog of getting to know Jesus because we're working our way through Matthew's gospel and there's going to be moments where if you just follow the popular opinion about who Jesus is, you're going to hear things like, Jesus is just a really nice guy. He's just nice and sweet all the time. Matthew 15, verse 7, and then keep that in mind when he learns that these words offended them. And see how he responds. You hypocrites. Isaiah was talking about a completely different people, but this applies to you too. You worship me in vain. Worthless, empty worship. Honored with just on the lips. It's just a show. The word hypocrite is a very 
fun word to study because in the original language, the word hypocrite means actor or actress. It is not a religious word. In fact, most people that have studied this word believe that Jesus is the one that gave the connotation of hypocrite that you and I now think of as somebody who looks one way on the outside but is really another way behind closed doors. Jesus kind of coined that term, and it's by him using it in these kind of settings to say, on the outside, you play or you act a certain way, but really you're a different person once you take off that mask. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is putting on the mask. So what is the mask in our context here in Matthew 15? It's the man-made rules. They want to give the appearance on the outside that they really love God and obey God, but inside, their hearts are willing to find whatever loophole they can to let their lives be run by their own sin. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The reason why you and I should care about this issue is because it leads to our worship. If we follow man-made rules, we will not be following God, worshiping God. We will not be responding to God. We will worship self. We will worship man. We will worship the man who gave us the rules or the person that we think is doing the best at obeying those rules. But only when we see that the commandments of God, as they truly are, cannot be obeyed by these sinful hearts and that we need Jesus the Christ to come and die and live and save us, then we will worship the one true God. Worship is a response to God. It is what you do in response to God being revealed to you. That's worship. Vain worship, empty worship, is when you're not really worshiping God, but you're worshiping somebody else, like yourself or another human being. And I think it's important for us to think, some people in churches think the tradition of their churches, some of the man-made ones, that that's true worship. If we only sing old songs, then we're truly worshiping. Old hymns like holy, holy, holy. If it's any time in the last 10, 15 years, it is not true worship. But then you hear the other side of that, don't you? If it's old, then it's dead orthodoxy. It's bad. That's not true worship either. It's got to be new. It has to be contemporary. The lights need to be down. Oh, I can't worship in this little assembly of people. I need thousands of people around me. Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping worship? This is a big issue today. My observations in this community is that this is one of the bigger issues with people going to church in our day is that they're worshiping worship, man-made rules and systems and ways to be and do church rather than just coming and saying, what if we open the Bible and read God's word? Will you then still worship him? Or do you need to have smoke and lights? Do you need some fancy show? Do you need a, an amazing oratory speech? What if it's just the pure word of God? Will that still lead you to worship? Because my friend, Sunday should just be an overflow expression of what you've been doing in your quiet prayer room closet Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We don't come to worship just on Sunday. 
We come to worship God anywhere at any time because we have God's word and his spirit, and we can do this anywhere with a true, genuine heart, and you don't necessarily need all these other bells and whistles. And so we could be just like these hypocrites when we come to church week after week and we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are actually on man-made things. That's verses 1 through 9. Should we break traditions? Sometimes. Yeah. When they contradict the Word of God and when traditions are put on par with God's Word. Traditions are not bad. Man-made rules are not bad. Many of them are good and helpful, and they are important for your discipleship. Even as a little proof text, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, I want to deliver to you the tradition that has been passed on to me, namely the gospel. Traditions can be good to help preserve the gospel, like creeds or statements of faith. That's a tradition, a man-made statement of what we believe as a church has been happening ever since Jesus established the church where followers of Jesus have created traditions of what to believe or how to live like a church covenant. That's a man-made tradition. That's not the word of God. But we as a church require that for any of you that are members to say, yeah, I'm going to submit myself to this man-made tradition. Not because it is God's word, but because it summarizes the teachings of God's word. And that distinction is huge. So let's move on to question two. Let's look at verses 10 to 20. And now that we've started to talk about the heart, Jesus is going to really press in and find out, and we'll find out from him, should we follow our hearts? Starting in verse 10, and he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. True purity is not about what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. And what does that mean? We're going to find out. Jesus is going to keep explaining this. But the disciples, although they're not quite getting it, The Pharisees knew enough of what this statement meant that they then are offended. So look at the next verse, verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And as I mentioned before, how is Jesus going to respond to finding out that he just offended somebody? Oh, let me apologize. Let me be politically correct. Let me backpedal. And he doubles down. He does not care that they are being offended by the word of God? Is Jesus trying to intentionally be offensive in the sense that like, hey, my mission is to go and offend people? No, no, no. And some of us, we need to remember that that's not our mission either. We're not trying to be offensive in of ourselves, but the word of God at times offends people who want to keep their man-made rules, their man-made traditions, and they don't want you pressing in on that, so they're offended by that. It's kind of like when people saw Colin Kaepernick sitting down during the national anthem. That's offensive to some people. Now, was that right or wrong? I don't know. That's for you to decide. But the point is that we're talking about something that's connected to religious, national identity. This is both political and religious all in one. And so these, these Pharisees are like, whoa, you're undermining our very existence of who we are as a people. They're offended by it. So how does Jesus respond? 
Leave them alone. Let them be. They're just blind guides. And this is really a play on words here because the Pharisees would have understood themselves when you read and study what they understood themselves to be was they were the people who had the truth and could really see and they were going to help the blind who couldn't see. And Jesus kind of flips that on their head and says, they're the blind guides. And so they're blind people that are leading blind people. And when both blind people are leading each other, they're going to fall into a pit. They're fakes. They have not really been planted in the ground truly. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted, he says. They're fakes. They're, they're like, think of an apple tree, and then there's like fruit that's taped on it. That's what they're like. They're not really growing out of the the Spirit of God and the Word of God, they're just kind of attaching themselves to God's agenda with their own man-made rules and kind of engineering something to make it look like, oh, wow, look at their good fruit. But you look close enough, you'll be like, there's a bunch of glue and tape on that tree. And that's what Jesus is trying to show. All of those fake plants and fake fruits, they will be uprooted by my Heavenly Father, so leave them be. Jesus' view of the Pharisees is that they are blind. And so how is that for responding to somebody that you just offended? Well, let them be. Water off my back. I'm not worried about it. Let them go. And because the Pharisees got it, they were offended. But look at Peter and his disciples. They weren't getting it, so they were like, Jesus, can you spell this out? Verse 15, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Some translations say, are you so dull? Do you not see? And so here he's just going to explain it real simply for all of us. Do you not see? That whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. This is actually a little too much detail of like, let me just spell this out for you. The literal word for expelled is actually like the toilet. And so he's using like potty language here. It's like, yeah, you guys are kind of slow. So let me be really basic and elementary here. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. You see what goes into the mouth goes into the stomach and it is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth comes from your heart. And what comes out of the heart, that is what truly defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I want you to look at that phrase where Jesus says in verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's one category, thoughts. And then notice the series of the next category of things. These are all kind of summaries of the Ten Commandments, the second half of them at least. Murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. So there's thoughts, then there's evil actions, and then there's evil words. I don't know, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Thoughts, actions, and words all come from the heart. Now, what is the heart? Not biologically, this red thing beating 
not what they would have meant. It's the word cardia. It's where you would get the idea of cardiac arrest. You've heard that phrase before, maybe. Cardia, heart. It's the inner soul of a person. It's the inner being. It's the part of you that has the longings and desires for what you really want in life. So think about this for a minute. Should we follow our hearts? Jesus says, our hearts produce evil thoughts, evil actions, and evil words. That the hearts are sick. That the longings of them, some of them at least, are not good. This is the exact opposite of the message of the world today. Follow your heart. Whatever your heart's leading you to do, follow it. Whoever you want to love, whatever actions you want to do, however you want to spend your time, money, and energy, follow your heart and don't let anybody tell you that you should do anything otherwise. And Jesus comes in and he contradicts that message. He says there are times where honestly you should not be following your heart. Because our hearts are broken. Our desires, they're, they're wanters, right? They want something. But their compass is off. It's wanting something that's heading us in a life that will be filled with pain and suffering and evil and hurts others. And so for these reasons, Jesus says that we should acknowledge and notice that really what defiles the real kind of purity what the Old Testament laws were all about was to try and purify your hearts or at least point you to the direction of here's the compass to which you should head. And this is the longing of your heart. And so the story of the Old Testament goes, they got God's law. They were given the compass. This is where you should go. This is what your heart should want. And time and time again, every human being in every Bible story did not want God's heart. Did not want God's law. Did not want to obey. It starts with page three of the Bible. Like it's that quick in the Bible that we learn that there is this sickness, there's this something wrong with our, our desires that we do not want to obey God. Even though he's leading us to life and goodness and prosperity in every which way of that, ultimately God is going to prosper his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's promising good things if you would obey his commands. And what humans do all the time in every culture, in every form of human history, no matter what the circumstances, whether they're good circumstances or bad, humans continue to show that their true nature, their hearts do not want to obey God. They want to make up their own man-made rules and think, I've got a better direction of what life might look like to lead to goodness and happiness. And each one of you, you know God's Spirit is at work in your life, either in this moment now or at any point in your life, when he is revealing to you, that's exactly what I'm like. When that clicks, it is because God has opened up your eyes from the blindness of your sick heart to say, there are so many times where when I follow my heart, it leads to disastrous results. Do you have any stories to tell, friends? Why do we do testimonies downstairs? Why do we regularly repeat 
in this congregation stories of, hey, I followed my own way, and here's the results. But God, rich in mercy, seeing how far off I was, came after me through the Lord Jesus Christ and rescued me. In his love and his grace, he forgave me, and then he implanted his spirit in me, and his spirit washed me and gave me new desires, and now I love the Bible, and I want to come to church. I'm not just doing this because of tradition. I'm doing this because I know this is good for me, and I I am putting some man-made rules around me, and I'm trying to be discipled because I love God. I don't want to disobey him. That's a Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus is to recognize the sickness of your sin in your heart, to admit that your thoughts are perverted. They're messed up. How many times have you judged somebody this morning? A judgmental thought, a question in your mind, a a greedy jealousy. Oh, why don't I have that? That's just your thoughts. We're not even talking actions. You might be a good person on the outside. But our thoughts are evil. Our actions come out of the overflow of those thoughts and our desires, and eventually you're just you're gonna do actions of what the heart really wants. And so you can look and do an inventory of your thoughts, you can do an inventory of your actions, you can do an inventory of your words. And that one's probably one of the most difficult. How many of us know that like we have said some things just like last week or in the last month where it's like, that was not kind. That was really painful. That hurt them. That's coming from our heart. We are sick and we need Christ. And so this story doesn't even tell us how how we get him. You have to keep reading. You know, Matthew's gospel wasn't supposed to just take a little section in Matthew 1 through 20 and then that's the end. Like if this was the end of the story, it would just be, hey guys, you're all really sick and you've got sin. Sorry. Well, now you know what the problem is. The good news is that the story of the Bible keeps going, that Matthew tells us the rest of the story, that Jesus came as the only human with a pure heart, pure perfection in his heart, where his desires were only, always and only for God the Father and honoring him and obeying every one of his commands. In fact, in John's gospel, it says, I do not speak a word unless the Father gives me the words to speak. Every single one of his words comes out of a heart of obedience and honor to the Father. Even these words that are sometimes hard, like, you hypocrites. You're blind guides. Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I never lived. And then, that pure perfection, people could not stand it. Have you guys ever been around somebody that's just really godly and you're like, oh, this is just so convicting. Like, get away from me. Like, this is bothering me. Like, are you really that good and holy? Like, no, there's got to be something behind that. And with Jesus, there wasn't. And it was so convicting and it was so challenging and confrontational in so many different levels, politically, religiously, morally, ethically, they killed him. These same Pharisees and scribes would continue to mount pressure against him, and at the end of Matthew's gospel, they kill him. Pure. Pure heart. And as he hangs on the cross, he speaks the word of God. He quotes the scripture. 
You know, when life gets the most difficult, that's when it's going to really show what's really in the heart. Can you think of anything more excruciating physically? Can you think of anything more emotionally bankrupt than having everybody desert you, even the Father in heaven turn his back from you? Can you imagine any more difficult situation than Jesus going through that last week of being rejected, of being beaten, of hanging on a cross, and in the very final moments of his life when things could not get more dark and difficult, he speaks the word of God because he cherishes God's word. It's in him. How do you follow your heart? When should you do it? When it's the word of God that's in your heart. When the word of God is the one that's guiding your heart. And so Jesus, going through the most difficult moments, has God's word on his lips. He quotes Psalm 22. He says, Father, into my hands I commit your spirit. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He is speaking the very words of God on his lips as he dies in the most excruciating of circumstances because it was pure perfection in his heart. And the word of God just saturated in his heart, coming out. And then he rises again from the dead three days later to conquer death, to conquer sin, to conquer all the forces of evil that would encourage you to follow the path that leads to death. And he gives you his Holy Spirit because he ascends to heaven at the Father's right hand and he pours out on us the very Spirit of God in our hearts to transform us. Friends, what I just did now is summarize to you in a little bit lengthy form the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and why that matters for you. Because if you're sick, then you need a new heart. You need heart surgery. You need a transplant. And so God transplants his heart through his spirit. Do you have it? Have you ever cried out to God, God, give me your spirit? And then if in any reoccurring moments of everyday life you've noticed, I am still working on this sin. It is sick in there. And in fact, the more I grow in my love for God, the more I'm realizing there's a lot more dirt in there. It's like the deep clean when you realize, oh, I didn't realize that was underneath there. And then you realize you need the gospel again and again. And you need a spirit every single day. Praise be to God. That is exactly what he has promised and delivered on. And that's why we're here. So friends, what we want to do as Christians in response to this is we want to follow our hearts when our hearts are being led and guided by the word of God. We want to cherish it. We want to surround ourselves with other believers that are centering themselves around God's word. We want to gather weekly, even though this is a commandment in the scriptures that we should not give a meeting together. Command. It's a tradition that we meet here at this time and in this particular manner and in this particular way that we do it. Those are just man-made rules to a degree. We could meet at 10 o'clock at night. We could meet at 7 o'clock in the morning. Some of you would love it. Some of you would hate it. We could meet in a different building. There's a bunch of different ways we could meet, but we should meet And so we should make man-made rules that are going to help us obey commandments like meet together regularly. And we should meet together in such a way that are going to help us obey God's word and have our hearts be led by God's word. So let's do that. Let's commit to that every single day and week. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. The good news that Christ has conquered the sickness in our hearts. The very longings and desires all the way down to the deepest part of our being where every action, every thought, and every word flows out of that you come in and invade every little nook and cranny and crevice. We thank you, God, for that. We thank you for its freeness, its gift to us, that it is not on the basis of our man-made rules and how well we are at obeying even God's rules. We give you thanks, God, for your generosity to share yourself with us, to share your spirit. We thank you for your rules and your commands. They are good. They lead to life. They're worthy of meditation and memorization and studying and discussion. They're especially worthy of obeying and applying. God, thank you for your laws and your commandments. And thank you for Jesus, who came not to abolish the laws and commandments, but to fulfill all of them in his full obedience. And help us remember everything is about him, comes through him, and it's for him. We pray this in his name. Amen.